Okay, can everybody hear me? So we're gonna get started. So welcome to everyone in the room and those who are watching remotely. I'm Susan DeStacio. I'm the Administrative Director of Nursing for the Cancer Center. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to the Marilyn Bedell Distinguished Lecture in Oncology Nursing. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Marilyn retired from her position as the Inpatient Nursing Director of Hematology Oncology from the Cancer Center in January of 2007. The Cancer Center established this lecture in Oncology Nursing to honor Marilyn's exemplary leadership she showed over the course of 35 years caring for cancer patients at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And Marilyn continues to be active in Dartmouth as a consultant with the Office of Professional Nursing. This Bedell Lecture brings distinguished guest speakers to the Cancer Center each year to address relevant trends and future directions in oncology nursing. And we have Marilyn here today and her husband, Ron. So before I introduce our speaker, I want to remind you that um, there are CEUs for this program, so you need to sign out on your way out. And if you're uh, looking for nursing CEUs, you need to complete the specific nursing uh, evaluation form. And just to let you know that our speaker today, uh, Dr. Katz, does not have any financial interests. She reports she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of products or devices. And she attests that she is not receiving direct payments from any commercial entity with respect to this activity. And at the end of the presentation, we'll be taking questions and answers. And those remotely uh, will be able to ask questions over the intranet. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce Dr. Ann Katz, our speaker today with Sexuality and Cancer, a Survivorship Issue. Dr. Katz received her RN through the School of Nursing in uh, South Africa, and then a BSN from University of Manitoba, an MSN in Community Health uh, from University of Manitoba, and then a PhD, an interdisciplinary PhD, in nursing, sociology, and medical microbiology from the University of Manitoba. She is an AASECT certified sexuality counselor and is a sexuality counselor for the Cancer Care in Manitoba, as well as an oncology clinical nurse specialist in the Manitoba Prostate Center since 2004. She is the editor of the Oncology Nursing Forum since 2012 and has numerous awards, publications, and invited presentations internationally on the topic of sexuality and cancer since 1996. She has also uh, been involved in numerous research studies on this topic. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Katz. Thank you so much. I'm actually going to stand to the side because you're not going to see much of me. Um, it's hard being short. Um, thank you very much, and thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here. Um, I've had a wonderful time since I've been here. I arrived in the dark and had a pleasant surprise when I looked out my window this morning because Dartmouth, uh, sorry, Hanover is really beautiful. I just didn't expect it. I don't know what I was, th I wasn't thinking. Um, and I didn't Google Earth it. So um, I'm really happy to be here and, and really honored. And also that all of you are here. I honestly thought it would be the Bedells and Susan and I. So, um, and, and that's just because they had to come. Um, so, um, 
Uh, there's my disclosure statement. I really don't take money from anybody. Um, so I'm going to talk about sexuality in the context of survivorship. Uh, I'm also going to talk about the sexual challenges that many of our patients experience, uh, and then really focus on our communication with them to encourage an open discourse about this, because the research tells us that patients want to talk about this. They want us to ask, however. So um, I, my very first book that I, that I wrote, and I'm now, I've just finished number 10, and I'm done. My husband says, you're done. I probably am, but I might not be. Um, one of the things that, that we have is the silence. The patient is waiting for us to start the discussion. We wait for the patient to ask the question or disclose a symptom or a problem. And the result is, a, is really a deafening silence. And, and my first textbook published in, I think it was 2007, was Breaking the Silence on Cancer and Sexuality because there really was a silence about this. I think it's changing a little bit, but in some ways with sexuality, we're back where we were with death and dying 30 years ago. And I think that we're actually getting into that same silent space, talking about overweight and obesity with our patients. Um, it's just something that's somehow taboo. So, you know, what is survivorship? We can't decide on a definition of survivorship. Uh, the National Coalition of Cancer Survivors talks about survivorship starting with diagnosis involving family and friends as well as uh, the individual diagnosed with cancer. This is another um, of their uh, definitions, these three seasons, acute survival starting with diagnosis, then extended survival um, that really is from the end of active treatment through you know, whatever survivorship is. And then the third season is permanent survival or cure. And one of the things that kind of bothers me, even though this is the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, is that there is no talk here about people with metastatic disease or at the end of life. And I think we often leave that out in the discourse on survivorship, right? We, we leave those two groups out, which I think um, is unfortunate. So, um, I don't know why that's, oh, that says 2012, because that's another book that I wrote. So I was increasingly interested in survivorship, and I did a really deep, deep um, review of the literature and developed these 10 key tasks of survivorship. And you can read them there. And, and that book actually is a, a book for cancer survivors and, and their support. It's, it's not a textbook. And Sexuality is there. This is not in order of importance. However, I think fear of recurrence really is the number one issue for cancer survivors. And the others, depending on age and circumstance, kind of, kind of fall in there. <coughs> Fatigue should probably be higher up. Um, survivorship is very much, a, a, sexuality is very much a survivorship issue. And often when I meet people who ask what I do and I say, well, I'm a certified sexuality counselor and I work exclusively with, with people with cancer, you know, you get that look, oh, it's got to be so difficult, you know, and I can see them giving me my angel wings. <laughs> and I say, to the contrary, as a sexuality counselor, generally, not always, but generally, when someone comes into my office, I know that they have got through the trauma of diagnosis, they've gotten through the chaos of treatment, and they are coming out the other side and they want to re-engage in their lives as full players 
in that life after cancer, that new normal, and that's often when issues around sexuality happen. I certainly see people um, in anticipation of what might happen, and this tends to be, not always, but tends to be with younger individuals. Um, I also see people who um, either um, through their own desire or their partner, partner's desire um, want to be sexual even when they're going through chemotherapy and are feeling absolutely awful. Sometimes they actually don't have a choice about that. But generally, probably 90% of the people that I see in my practice are finished active treatment. They may be on endocrine manipulation therapy. They may be on some, of, some targeted therapies forever and ever but they've got through that main part of, of their acute treatment. So I thought I would share with you perhaps a typical case or a typical patient who I might see. Um, my office is actually situated in the Manitoba Prostate Center, um, which began in October we, uh, with our 10-year anniversary. And this is a center staffed by nurses, urologists, radiation oncologists, um, and we see men with both benign and malignant prostate disease. I see a lot of these men, as you can imagine. Um, at one point, I was actually running a penile rehabilitation program until last year. There was a large study that came out that showed that this penile rehabilitation uh, specific program actually works as well as on-demand medication, so we scrapped the penile rehab program. Um, I actually used to like talking about that in front of my, well, not, not about my patients, but um, in front of my young adult children, I would say, yeah, and I'm a penile rehab specialist. <laughs> <laughs> it got them back for all, you know, the drinking and the late nights and not calling stuff. So I see a lot of men um, after prostate uh, cancer. So, you know, here's a typical scenario of something that I see. First of all, um, Either the, the patient asks one of the nurses to make an appointment with me, and the guy shows up by himself because he's a man, and this is his problem, and he's going to fix it. And I now actually say to him, um, yes, you're a man. This is not your problem alone, and you're not going to fix it by yourself. Go away and come back with your partner, and then we can talk about dealing with this issue. But you're certainly not going to fix it by yourself. So he'll come back with his partner, in this case, She's going to be a wife. It could be a male partner. It could be his girlfriend or his mistress. Um, that has happened. Um, uh, so I, you know, the introductions need to be clear. I need to know who I'm talking to. Um, so this is commonly a 63-year-old man who had a radical prostatectomy. I'm also involved in treatment decision making before they uh, have they decide on a treatment. So I perhaps have seen this patient before. And he comes in, it's now nine months post-radical prostatectomy. He has profound erectile dysfunction, and he is unhappy. His wife is unhappy, too, because he's kind of crabby. And they have now got themselves into a situation where they are living like college roommates. Sometimes they're actually in separate bedrooms. Um, the number one reason for sleeping in separate bedrooms is snoring. Um, so they're already in, in separate bedrooms, and they have completely stopped touching each other in any way, shape, or form. He never holds her hand when they're watching television. He doesn't kiss her goodbye when he goes to play bridge or whatever it is that he does during the day or when he comes home. And they are two lonely, lonely people sitting in my office. 
and they've sort of drifted like this. And you know, I think there's this critical point where the drifting starts and it's really hard to get back together. It's kind of like when you stop exercising, you know how long it takes you to get back on that bicycle. <laughs> Um, and of course, what he thinks is that there's going to be some magic pill or potion that's going to fix him, right, and fix him quick. And it's not going to involve his brain. It's certainly not going to involve his heart. It's just going to work on his genitalia, and everything's going to be fine. And then I tell him, yeah, that's not how it works, sir. So that is fairly typical of what I see, and I'm going to touch on some of that as I go through um, the next number of slides. So as I see it, these tend to be the major sexual challenges for individuals with cancer, pretty much of any age. And there is no cutoff in age for me. I have patients in their 80s. I have patients in their 20s. I have patients who are a little bit younger than that, too. Um, tend not to have pediatric patients, thankfully, with this issue um, yet. Uh, that would not be good. So I'm going to talk about each of these, and then if you don't mind, if we can leave questions to the end. I've put communication up at the top, because honestly, without communication, they will never, ever, ever make any changes at all. So despite being together for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they have never talked using outside words about their sex life, about that connection between them. We're human beings, and yet when it comes to matters related to sexuality, we are like dolphins and whales. We communicate in grunts and squeaks. <laughs> and the long, think about it, right? <laughs> and we become really good at understanding what our partner's grunts and squeaks make, and they understand ours, and along you go. We are also creatures of habit. If something's been working for 45 years, you're not about to change it now, right? And I think that's often why sex dies for many people is because they don't have that flexibility to do things differently. We just keep doing it. And I often joke, I, I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba. We're in the middle of the prairies. And um, so we all have sexual scripts. This is sexology uh, speak for you know the way we are sexual beings, either by ourselves or with someone else. And so the prairie sexual script is Saturday night, 10:20, lights off, jam is on, missionary position. <laughs> when I say that somewhere on the prairies, people get annoyed with me. But anyway, <laughs> you know, in New York City, man, that is not the sexual script at all. But we all, <laughs> but we all have a certain way of doing things. So when when there's a challenge, it is very difficult to talk about it because many of us actually don't know our, the names of our body parts. Right? We have down there. <laughs> it's a big place. <laughs> um, so often the first time that, that these couples have an opportunity to actually speak about it in words is in my office, or perhaps hopefully your office. This is a huge issue for individuals who are single, because they have to disclose their cancer history at some point, and that's the $64 million question, 
They also have to disclose if there's a body part missing or if something doesn't work properly anymore. And that is a huge, huge hurdle. The only couples that I see, and I mean this, that negotiate a successful sex life after cancer is couples who can communicate, who are flexible, and I don't mean physically flexible, <laughs> and who have good coping skills, who are able to say, you know what? Things are not the same as they were before, but we are going to talk about it and we're going to work really hard to create a new normal for ourselves, which may be 180 degrees different from what they had before, but it does not mean that it's worse. And there is good research with, prostate, with men with prostate cancer to show that many of them, in the absence of erections, actually are better sexual partners because they can't rely on the same old, same old. And they have to use a whole bunch of other senses and parts of themselves other than their penis. And the other area of communication that I'm going to, fo that I'm going to focus on in the latter part of my talk is that of our silence and our communication. And if we don't talk about it, our patients think it's not important. This person doesn't care. This is a taboo subject, and I'm not going to ask about it. Because if it's important, my oncology care provider would have brought it up, because they brought up all this other stuff, right? So they're leaving it out for a reason. So communication is really important. So traditionally, we think about the human sexual response cycle in f distinct phases. And I'm doing something that I really shouldn't be doing. I'm presenting this as one slide after another. Um, but I, I hope to dispel some myths about this. So desire or libido is, for some of us, an important part of the sexual response cycle. We often assume that it's the first part. And this is where um, lots of patients run into problems, particularly women. Men, because they have lots of testosterone, generally are, on a daily basis, highly libidinous. It does tend to change with age, which is probably a good thing, because um, they've got like other stuff to do. Um, <laughs> and you know, there are jokes, right, about men think about sex like 72 times a minute. <laughs> probably 40, no, I, no, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, but the interpretation by many of us is that you have to be desirous or libidinous to get something happening. And that's not entirely true, particularly for women. Women often have responsive sexual desire. So a woman, you know, she's worked eight hours or 12 hours in the case of people who work here. Um, and then, you know, you've picked up your kids from soccer and ballet and wherever. And then you've stopped at the grocery store. And then you go home and you make dinner. And then you have dinner. And then you clean up. And then you know you do all that kind of stuff. And, and certainly men are more involved in this. And then at 10.30 at night, when you're just about falling asleep on your feet, really? <laughs> now? OK, if I just can't lie here, right? Um, so women think that because they are not feeling desire, that nothing is going to happen. What we see most often, and there's, a, there's an interesting um, model of the 
of the female sexual response cycle by a gynecologist from British Columbia by the name of Rosemary Basson. And she's come up with a circular model that does not start with desire. Because for many women, desire starts when you actually start fooling around. Or your partner takes out the garbage, whichever comes first, <laughs> without being asked. And I'm not picking on you guys, so we'll get there. Um, so, so women, for example, women who are on tamoxifen, one of the side effects of, of tamoxifen is that they lose desire. And so I often see women, and, and you know it's interesting, because when I've looked into the research on this, there's this number of papers that say that it doesn't affect desire, and there's this number of papers that say that it does. If the patient comes to me and says, you know what, I have absolutely no desire anymore, and I say, oh, when did this start? And she says, when I was taking tamoxifen. And then we talk about body image and stuff. If she thinks it's associated with tamoxifen, then for her it's associated with, it's not up to me to persuade her otherwise. Um, but I say to these women, and I show them this model, I have it laminated, if you are in a safe relationship, that's important. It's not fueled by alcohol or abuse. If you're in a safe relationship and you know you both, I don't know, brushed your teeth, had a shower, whatever your, your bottom line is, um, and you can say no, right, and it's respected, maybe you start fooling around because that's often when desire kicks in for women. Um, desire is complex. It's not just about our genitals. It's about our hearts and our brains, and it's influenced by what we're doing the rest of the day, and it's influenced by whether we've shaved our legs for some of us, and you know, and and other things that you would think are outside of being sexual, but we bring hopefully our whole selves to the situation. So if something's bothering you, it's going to impact on us. Um, Giving women testosterone is not a particularly great idea, um, and and it's not FDA approved, but it is used a lot. Um, back in 2002, I think, my husband, who's a health services researcher, and I, um, they had just released the testosterone gel in Canada. So we decided to do a study on um, whether... The recommendation is that men have a PSA done and a, and a, a digital rectal exam and, and have their testosterone measured before they're given a prescription for testosterone. So he works with big administrative databases. And because of the healthcare system in Canada, we know all the tests that are done on every individual and whether they filled prescriptions. We can link the pharmacy data with uh, de-anonymized um, health data. And he came home one day with this big stack of papers. It was, it was the printout from the analysis. And we looked through it. And 3% of men were actually having the recommended test done before they were given a prescription. But 25% of the people getting a prescription for testosterone were women. And I said to him, there's something really wrong with this. You know, they've coded something wrong. Go run that analysis again, please. He comes back three days later. Same thing. 25% of women. We're getting a prescription for testosterone, not FDA approved, right? Off-label, risk of breast cancer, eek, we've got to be careful. Um, so, you know, desire is not easily treated because it is so complex. Um, and it probably is the number one complaint of everybody I meet in the supermarket who find out what I do. Um, and it's certainly a, it's certainly a complaint uh, you know, think about men on androgen deprivation therapy, right? Libido gone out the window for 80 to 85% of them. Um, arousal. 
um, there is lots of understanding and misunderstanding around arousal. Men know when they're aroused, right? It's visible, it's out there, there's no mistaking. Women, not so much. And in studies of college-age women, 50% of women who were showing physiological signs of arousal, and I won't talk about how they figured that one out, um, did not report subjective arousal. So this is part, I think, of our socialization. First of all, there's not, there's not much to really see, because in the middle of everything, you're not going to go and get a mirror and a flashlight. Um, <laughs> maybe that would be a good idea, I don't know. Um, but many of us have been socialized um, in a really negative way about female arousal, right? And what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Uh, so women often have a really difficult time understanding what this is about. Um, it is manifested for women with lubrication and lots of the treatments that we use, particularly, for example, with breast cancer, impacts on estrogen, and estrogen is the hormone of arousal and is involved in the production of lubrication. So this is where um, we certainly see a lot of women with problems. Um, women on uh, the uh, aromatase inhibitors have terrible problems, and we'll get to that in the next slide. Um, but there are also psychological components to this as well, the number one being pain. Um, this is the area where perhaps we can intervene uh, in a meaningful way. Certainly for men, we have the PD-5 inhibitors, which are agents to promote arousal. They do not cause erections. They just um, maintain erections. And this is probably the number one issue that I see uh, in men. They come to see me and they say, I've been using whichever the PD-5 inhibitor is, and it doesn't work. And I say to them, tell me how you used it. And they look at me like I'm really stupid, like, you know, blonde woman asking this question. And I say, no, really, tell me. And they say, well, you know, after dinner, I took the pill, and then, and, and then nothing happened. I said, what did you do? And then he said, well, I watched television. <laughs> I said, oh, OK. And he said, and nothing happened. I didn't ask what he was watching. And then I said, where was your partner? Oh, well, she went to bingo. OK. <laughs> so you didn't tell her you'd just taken $15 worth of drugs? Yeah, no, OK. I said, did you apply genital stimulation? No. Well, hello, so this is, that's why I asked the question, right? Because somebody who provided him with that prescription or gave him that sample failed him, right? He didn't fail, the drug didn't fail. The healthcare provider who just handed him a prescription without any kind of education, because I think these drugs have just been, you know, just so much part of our lives that, I mean, have you seen the latest ads for some of these medications? But like this woman in, on, in the Caribbean. I, I don't know. Anyway. Um, but there are, there, are, there are ways that you can really um, increase arousal through the use of vibrators, for example, for women. Um, really, really helpful to both alert them to the um, sensation of arousal that they perhaps have sort of denied, um, and the medication for men. Atrophy is a very, very, very big issue. Um, it happens after radiation therapy to the pelvis because the tiny blood vessels are obliterated, um, and so you get dryness. Um, it happens to men who stop having normal erections, particularly nocturnal erections, 
and the penile tissue, and this is sort of the foundation of penile rehabilitation, and the, the tissues of the penis actually become um, uh, filled with collagen and become non-responsive uh, to, to, to arousal. Um, and atrophy is a very, very big issue. And this is where the patient's knowledge of anatomy and our willingness to go there with a patient is really important. Because if you say to a woman, do you have vaginal dryness? And she says no. Many of us go, okay, she doesn't have vaginal atrophy, moving right along. But she may have severe vulval dryness and severe introital pain as a result of that. So it doesn't matter what's happening beyond the vaginal introitus. The problem is that her vulva is so painful that any kind of touch, right, makes her completely clench up. The muscles of her pelvic floor seize up, and nothing is going nowhere, right? And nor should it. So she's once somebody has experienced pain, you have a visceral reaction in response to the pain the next time you try. And partners tend to know when they're causing this woman pain. Right? Because there are tears running down the side of her face into the pillow. And a, a patient actually once said that to me in front of her partner. She said, you know, I just grit my teeth and I get done with it. And I'm just so grateful that he doesn't know that I'm crying. Right? And the man said to her, her husband said to her, I know. And I just feel so guilty. And I'm just such a terrible person because I want this. Right? And I don't think he, yeah, it, you know, it's a mess. Right? So he's now guilty, and it's not uncommon for me then to see an associated sexual problem for him. So these men often develop rapid ejaculation because they just, you know, they want it, they need it, they're going to get it done in two seconds or more, and then they feel absolutely horrible. And when she finds out that, you know, that he's feeling so horrible, she feels guilty, and it turns into like a giant Catholic Jewish fest of guilt. <laughs> They're neither, right? <laughs> um, I have no idea why I put social issues or surveillance issues there. <clears throat> that is really weird. Okay, I'm sorry. I have no idea what that is about. Um, people also commonly experience altered sensation. Um, most obviously when anatomic structures have been uh, interfered with. So, for example, um, with a radical prostatectomy, um, even when nerve sparing is attempted, the traction put on those nerves um, really put the nerves into shock, uh, and they don't function that well, particularly during the night. And the sole purpose of nocturnal erections is to keep the tissues of the penis healthy. It has absolutely nothing to do with intercourse, even though men have used that as an excuse for ever. Look, honey. Um, <laughs> go away, leave me alone. Um, um, you know, so you know, there are obvious things. A mastectomy is an anatomic disruption, particularly for a woman whose breasts were an integral part of her sexual script. Um, I see, I actually run a program for women uh, with anal or rectal cancer who are having radiation therapy because they often land up with stenosis of the vagina. And um, I run a program for them uh, about dilator use. Um, so there is something which a lot of people would not associate with an anatomic disruption, right? It's radiation therapy. You're not cutting anything. But, th but these women really often land up in trouble. Um, it is linked to arousal because sometimes the, uh, the disruption actually interferes with 
the ability to be aroused. So women who've had a hysterectomy, where often the uh, nerve plexuses are damaged, men who are having surgery for colorectal cancer, we often see great damage and, and they land up with uh, uh, insufficient erections. Removal of the uterus actually impacts qualitatively on the experience of orgasm for many women. And it's something that we don't talk about because many of us think of the uterus as a reproductive organ, right? It's where the fetus hangs out for 40 or so weeks. Um, but we know that the uterus actually um, contracts during orgasm. So many women after hysterectomy report that, yeah, they're still having orgasms, but they qualitatively feel different. Um, in men after radical prostatectomy, 30% of men experience orgasms, they're dry orgasms, there's no ejaculation. Um, that, so 30% of men, the sensation of orgasm is the same as it was before. 30% of men report that their orgasms are much, much weaker and are almost a non-event. And 30% of men report that their orgasms are so intense, some to the point of pain, that they become avoidant because it really, really hurts. Um, we think that that's linked to the pelvic floor, and we work closely with pelvic floor physiotherapists. Um, one of them actually has a PhD in pelvic floor physiotherapy, go figure. Um, and they do amazing work uh, with these patients because what you want is a normal tone in the pelvic floor muscles. You don't want a hypertonic or a hypotonic pelvic floor. And many of us have, you know, one or the other. Um, and these altered sensations often fall into the category of long-term or late effects. So there's something that's, that perhaps starts during treatment but is not noticed because the patient is not sexual during treatment, but that carries on for the rest of their life. Or it might be something that happens a ways after treatment is over and they may not associate with their treatment. So you know this is a good reason to actually ask about relationships, and that's a good way to kind of get into it, and I'll talk more about that later, um, but to raise this topic during survivorship care, because it's often then when the patient is sexual again, and, uh, and they notice that. Um, many people, um, well, I think perhaps men more than, than women, assume that in order to be sexually satisfied, you have to have orgasms. And we know that roughly 30% of women orgasm with um, vaginal penetration. 70% of women don't. There's a lot of confusion about this. I think there's a lot of mythology about this. I'm seeing a young couple. Um, they, they were married for... 10 years, they got married really young. They come from uh, really fundamental uh, Christian backgrounds. They were married for 10 years, and um, she got brain cancer. And she's doing really, really well. They have two kids uh, that were born before. The, the baby was six months when she was diagnosed. She's doing really, really well. She's back at work. Um, she has a, a job that requires a lot of concentration and is very intellectual. She's doing really, really well but she is exhausted at the end of the day. Her husband works as well, but he has a much freer work schedule, and I don't think it's as pressured. And he is convinced, and I've met with them together, and I've met with them separately, and, and that's really useful for me at some point in the treatment to, to meet with them separately. 
He is convinced that if only she had orgasm, she would want sex more. And so when I met with him, so he pressures her a lot, right? Um, and she's just really tired and she's got a lot on her plate and she's really scared. And, um, and when I met with her separately, she said to me, I said to her, what do you want more than anything related to this part of your life? And she said, I want him to sleep in the bed with me. I said, what do you mean? She said, he doesn't sleep in, my, in our bed anymore. She goes to bed earlier than him. He tends to hang out in the family room and he watches television and he sleeps on the couch. So when I met with him, I said to him, what do you want? And he said, I want her to have orgasms more because then she'll want to have sex more because that's sort of how it works for him. Um, and he said to me, I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anybody. I said, okay, what is it? And he said, I don't sleep in our bed. <laughs> um, I said, oh, why? And he said, because I'm afraid that I'm going to wake up one day and she's going to be dead. Mm. Right? And every now and then I almost lose it. And that was one of the times. It just, you know, woo. Um, and he said, I know it's not rational, right? And I know, you know, <clears throat> I could get up in the morning and she could be dead in the bed. And, it's, you know, it's probably not going to happen like that. Um, but, you know, here they are, right? They love each other desperately. They're great friends, which is not always a good thing for your sex life, but they really are great friends. And, you know, she has stage four brain cancer. They know that this is not forever. They really, really do. Um, and they want to live a full life together. And there's this stuff. And, you know, he wants her to have more orgasms. Um, so really two very different spaces that they're in. Um, so, you know, this is difficult. You go to uh, Barnes & Noble, you go to any bookstore, there are going to be two shelves, right, full of books about how women can have better orgasms, more orgasms, spontaneous orgasms, <laughs> parallel, I mean, you know, you name it. This is a big, big issue um, and, and can be a difficult one to address. All of this, all of this happens in the context of those people's lives. It happens in the context of their relationship. A conflicted relationship in the beginning is not suddenly going to become like, you know, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. God, I hate that movie. Um, <laughs> I really do. Um, um, it's about where they are in terms of coping with the cancer, the distress that they may or may not be experiencing, and depression, 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 right? 25% of our patients are depressed. And then we treat them with SSRIs, and boom, you know, there went their orgasm. Or boom, there went something else. E, you know, what are you going to do? But we we should never forget the context. So, some of the stuff is around nurses, but I've got stuff for you physicians there too. So, what do nurses think and do? Well, we just go around blithely smiling with our caps on our heads. <laughs> so. When we look at um, when we look at nurses and how comfortable they are talking about this, we know that younger nurses and those with 
a less experienced identify a whole load of barriers to talking about this. Patients are older than us, you know, um, there's no time, there's no privacy, there's a whole host of barriers, and I have answers for all of them. And look, certified nurses working in outpatient facilities found fewer barriers, and I think that's because of the longitudinal relationships nurses in outpatient departments have. We see our patients for long, 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 sometimes longer than is necessary time, um, and that develops trust and rapport, and we're able to ask those questions. And yes, you know, we recognize that this is something that our patients want to talk about, but we would rather walk on hot coals for the most part. I think it's changing, uh, but it is still identified as a barrier. Um, what else? Uh, you know, this is a list of some of the barriers. There's this weird thing about talking about sexuality, not just about like sex, but about our sexuality, how we feel about our bodies, who we love, who we are emotionally attached to. Because we are all sexual beings, there's this thing that happens that we are afraid that the patient's going to ask us a question and we don't know the answer to it, and that's going to be really embarrassing, right? Because we're all sexual beings. So we're just not going to ask those questions. I know a lot about this stuff. I really do. It's like been, you know, my professional passion for the last 12 or 15 years. Every now and then, a patient will ask me a question, and I don't have a hot clue what the answer is. And I say, you got me. I have no idea. I need to think about this. I need to Dr. Google it. Um, and I will try and find an answer for you. Do we all know everything there is to know about the patients we treat? No. There are new drugs. There are new therapies. And it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know the answer. I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to speak to a colleague. I'm going to look it up somewhere. I'm going to go to the oncology nursing forum and find the answer. Um, so, so, and our colleges and universities, whereas in the 60s and 70s, there were basic human sexuality courses that were required, they've gone away. Right? So many of us don't know the right parts. Um, there is avoidance of sexual assessment because we don't think there's anything we can do for the patient. Um, it's sometimes on right on the bottom of the checklist, right? And we just didn't have time to get down there. And I know that that doesn't happen here, right? Because somebody told me about this. Um, we live in a conservative society, an increasingly conservative society, where this is regarded, for the most part, as a taboo. Right? You know, nice people don't talk about it. There's that fear of blushing. I get that a lot. What if I blush? You blush. I blush sometimes. I can't, you can't control a blush. It happens. Use it as an icebreaker. Um, <laughs> really? Look, you made me blush. Ha ha, I'm human. Um, um, often people say, oh no, I don't want to ask about it because what if the patient's offended? The patient is not going to be offended. They might look at you a little strange, right? But that's going to be the patient that comes back another time that says, remember when you asked me about that? And boom, they're going to spill a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we, pay, we play a lot of passing the buck. The oncologist thinks it's the nurse's job. The nurse thinks it's the social worker's job. The social worker thinks it's that, right? And around and around we go, and nobody addresses it. Um, sometimes there actually are institutional issues. 
Um, this lack of privacy is an issue sometimes. I've got an answer for that. So I often get from people who work in the infusion unit, but you know, there are all these patients hanging out together. I can't possibly talk about it. Oh, yes, you can, because here are the patients, and I'm going to go to you, and I'm going to say, you know what? Some patients have questions about sexual functioning, sexual activity after treatment or during treatment. If you want to talk about it, tell me, and we'll find a private place to talk. Bang for my buck. <laughs> right? Just have to say it once. And those other patients will come, and you'll teach your colleagues too. Um, and then sometimes we, you know, we just don't know what to do. Are there guidelines about this? What should we be doing? The most important thing that you can do in this realm is listen. Don't try and fix stuff. Listen. Because often in the telling of the story, the patient will figure out the solution, right? And you look good and you didn't do a thing. <laughs> Um, when, we, when we talk to patients, um, this is important to them. It's as important to them as it is for us. And sometimes I get a little bit, bit of pushback from some of my oncology colleagues. You know, why is this important? And, you know, why are you taking up that room? Or why are you doing this? Um, and I say to them, because it's important to the patient. And they sometimes, and I'm not branding all oncologists, because I know you guys are different. Uh, and you women are different, and they say, but the, he, you know, he or she just needs to be glad that they're alive. That makes me nuts, right? And sometimes I have been known to say to the more recalcitrant uh, of my colleagues, I want you for just two seconds to think about never, ever, ever, ever for the rest of your life having an erection. And they say, oh, okay, I get it now. It helps a little bit. So, so this is a study um, where they, they looked at people with different kinds of cancers, right? And was it talked about? So prostate seems to be a no-brainer. That number should be 100%, right? Only 80%. Talk to men about it more often than women. I think because we've got oral, we've got oral medications for men, but for women, it's just this giant black box. Only 33% of breast cancer patients? That just seems really strange to me. Colorectal, 41%, and lung, 21%. The same study, almost half had never had a conversation with their healthcare provider. Not good. But that doesn't happen here. Um, uh, we tend to hide behind Latin words, and we take a very medicalized approach to this because that helps us with our discomfort talking about it. Um, we avoid it for a whole lot of different reasons, um, sometimes because people really think this is a novelty topic and really is not part of the life and death work that we do in the rest of our day. We're, you know, we're curing cancer. How can sex be that important? Um, Sometimes people don't want to be identified as like, you know, the sex person among their colleagues because somehow that's weird. I'm really happy to be the sex person. <laughs> I really am. Um, this study actually, and this I thought was really interesting, was that, and, and this was actually done with, with oncologists, there was fear of being misinterpreted and fear of litigation, which is a really sad, right? Um, and then, you know, the whole issue of, of trust and confidence and, and um, 
trusting the patient and the patient's trust or our perceived um, idea of how much the patient trusts us. Uh, so I think that's uh, kind of interesting. So how do you talk about this? I'm going to talk about a couple of models. And often when I say I'm going to talk about a couple of models, I see people's eyes glaze over. Models are really there to help us, right? They're the skeletons upon which we can have these sensitive and sometimes difficult conversations. So the first is the better model. This comes from the oncology <coughs> nursing literature, so there's seven steps. You know, we like to complicate things. So bring up the topic. Have a statement in your head, not in your pocket, because if it's in your pocket, it's just going to gather lint. Have a statement in your head that you can say quickly and easily, and it doesn't have to have SEX in it, if that's going to freak you out. So, you know, after treatment for, for prostate cancer, many men have problems with arousal. Is there anything you want to talk to me about today or at some other time? Arousal isn't the same as saying sex. You may want to come at it from the perspective of the relationship. How is your relationship with your partner? Has it changed since the cancer? And often that's a really good way of dealing with other stuff as well, role change, etc. Um, so just have something. Practice it in the mirror. Practice it in the car. Practice it with your family um, until you can get it out without stammering and, and potentially embarrassing yourself. I hate this next step. I want to take it out, but then it'll be the button, right? And how you and, and okay. Explain that you're concerned with quality of life issues, including sexuality. Why do we need to make an excuse, right? That's making an excuse for talking about this. It's part of life. Our patients want to talk about it. Talk about it. Tell patients you'll find appropriate resources, and that the time may not be right now, but they can come back at any point. We have a duty to educate our patients about the sexual side effects of their treatment, as we do with all the other side effects. Good luck finding a list of sexual side effects for any medication. It's not there, I can tell you now. So you sometimes have to do, you know, some synapses in your brain have to work. You know, if something affects mucous membranes, you don't just have mucous membranes in your mouth. Um, I presented at a, a bone marrow transplant conference in Toronto, and the pre president of the, um, I, it was at lunchtime for the nurses, you know, and um, the president of the association came to meet me, and he said to me, why is this an important topic? And I said to him, okay, so do your patients have stomatitis? He said, yeah, like, you know, 80% of them have stomatitis. I said, where else do they have mucous membranes? And he stopped, and I actually saw a light go off. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, right? Um, so, you know, sometimes you've got to figure it out. And then, of course, because this is a nursing model, you've got to record your assessment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the Plissett model. It's been around since 1976. For a long time, I thought that was anonymous. It's not. It's the name of a psychologist by the name of Jack Anon. Uh, <laughs> I like poetry. What can I say? I, I read a lot of poetry. So this is probably the one that is most commonly used because it's really simple, right? Permission. Open the door. Have that opening statement. Give your patient the permission to talk about it. So you've got to put on your big old panties and ask about it, right? What most patients want is limited information. They want validation, normalization of what they're going through. And if you are working with a specific patient population, you need to know 
this. You really do, it, you know, as you know the drugs that they're on. Some patients need a little bit more in-depth <coughs> advice and that specific suggestion. And the difference between the two is this. Mommy, where do babies come from? Mommy's tummy. Limited information. How did the baby get there? <laughs> specific suggestion. Then, because he was a psychologist, he, you know, I think the assumption was that intensive therapy was lie down on the couch and tell me, you know, all your secrets. Our understanding of this now, our interpretation of this now, is that this is when, when you get beyond your scope of practice or your level of confidence, this is when you refer on. So you may refer to a social worker, you may refer, refer to a pelvic floor physiotherapist, you may refer to an obstetrician or gynecologist, you may refer to a urologist, you may refer to a, a psychiatrist or to a sexuality counselor or sex therapist or sexual medicine expert. But at some point, you're kind of going to run out of answers, perhaps, and that is that next level is to refer on. Then some people got hold of this one, uh, and they have come up with the extended plicit model or the explicit model, which is kind of cute. Um, and really, it's, you know, it's basically um, the same thing around permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy. But what this says is that with each of these, you need to review and reflect with the patient, which helps so that you know what they've understood about it. But there is also this bigger upper order uh, challenge to be self-aware of where your barriers and blockages are, to reflect on them, to actually do something about them, right? And to challenge your own assumptions. And we all have assumptions, right? I, in my late 20s and early 30s, I could not figure out why anyone over the age of 40 would bother to have sex. <laughs> because it's all like jiggly and weird, right? And why would you bother? I was so wrong, I'm glad to say. You know, but that was an assumption of mine. We make assumptions about what people do. Every day, somebody says to me, is this normal? Normal's a wide spectrum, right? Most of us regard what we do as normal and what everyone else does is not normal, but that's not true. Just, you know, there is no judgment on this. So this is, you know, just a, 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 an expanded, uh, but I really like this idea of really thinking about this and reflecting and thinking about how you responded and could you do this better? This actually comes from the smoking cessation uh, literature. And this is Sharon Boba, um, a colleague of mine from Dana-Farber. And so, so for some people, this is actually more helpful. Advise, ask, assess, assist, and arrange, right? So and it should probably be the other way around. Ask, advise, assess, or perhaps ask, assess, advise, assist the patient in finding help and arrange for referrals if you if you need. So those of you who are comfortable with this in terms of smoking cessation, you know, great, use it use it for this. And there we go, five or seven minutes to spare. So this is my contact information. Feel free to contact me. Um, the first email address is my work email address, and we have a really sensitive spam filter, except now for things around expandable um, water hoses window replacements, <laughs> and something called the genie bra. 
Um, um, but feel free to contact me. I'm, I tweet like a mad thing. My website is very, very badly neglected, and I'm happy to you know, speak to people. Just if you have a question, call me. It would be my pleasure. Um, that's it. Thank you. So we have time for a few questions or comments. Or you can just throw shoes at me. <laughs> yes. So this is not what I think. This is what came out of the study, that the oncologists in the study were afraid of legal repercussions if they discussed sex or sexuality with their patients. Because of sexual harassment issues? Who know? I don't know. Or being sexually inappropriate. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's really sad, right? That something that is part of life, that you're afraid to raise it. I can understand if you're going to discuss this perhaps with a child. You know, it could be misconstrued. Um, but with an adult? Yes. Yeah, I know you've written a lot about the gay and lesbian population. Do you have any words of advice as we deal with those clients? As, I mean, I'm sure the, the same principles hold true, but what have you learned in your practice? So what I've learned in my practice is, is language is so important. And I, you know, I use neutral language. So I think we were talking about it at, at breakfast this morning in Journal Club. I, I say, is your, you need to bring your partner with you. Um, often I'm greeted with, um, the response is, you mean my business partner? <laughs> I say, no, you know, the, or the person that you live with. Oh, the wife. Okay, so that's real clear. But every now and then, I'll call someone to set up an appointment because I've received a referral. And I say, is you, and you need to bring your partner with. And there's a silence. And then I hear a male voice in the background. If I had said, you need to bring your wife to a gay man, that guy is never coming to see me. Now, it's gotten a little bit more complicated, yay, with many, many states and, and provinces in, in Canada, same-sex marriage, there's marriage equality, right? So I was on a plane on Saturday night, and I was talking to the flight attendant, and she said, yeah, my wife's a nurse. And as we were talking, I thought, wow, right? Yeah. Um, and I was happy for her on a number of levels, right? A, that she could say it on a plane and not be afraid that, you know, something bad would happen, and B, that she has a wife, and C, that she, you know, she could talk to me about it, and, and that her wife's a nurse, yay! Um, <laughs> and probably earns twice as much as she does. Um, so language is really, really important. And the other thing is that I think we make assumptions about what other people do sex-wise, um, and those assumptions get us into a whole lot of trouble. So, and I think we should do this with everyone. Okay, so what does your sex life look like? Right? And often, you know, I hear people say, you know, we haven't had intercourse for 10 years because of this. But there's this other stuff that we do. Okay, so I know where I need to start. Um, not everyone needs to be at that level, but but I think you know taking off that heterosexist lens that dominates in our society, that assumption that everybody is heterosexual, is a really good place.
to start. And there, there's all sorts of myths, right? You know, all gay men have anal intercourse. No, they don't. You know, all lesbians don't have a sex life. No. Um, you know, they're weird. No. Uh, but there's that unknown. And hopefully we'll get to a place where this is be something that, you know, we can talk about. I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're getting Good question. Thank you. Any other questions? Great. Okay, go back uh, to work, people. <laughs>